Hey, welcome to Current Yield. This is Jim Grant on behalf of Grant's Interest Rate Observer of the Air with me, as always, the great Deputy Editor of Grant's, Evan Lorenz. And uh, with us today as well, Dean Pernut, who is the Chief Cook and Bottle Washer, the Progenitor, uh, the CEO, and for all I know, the King of Macro Risk Advisors. Uh, uh, Dean helps his clients um, anticipate risk, uh, imaginatively do something about it, hedge it, um, conquer it, and sometimes beat it to a pulp. Um, and we are going to talk today about um, the many facets of risk and uh, what uh, one might do to protect oneself and indeed profit from it. So, uh, Evan, welcome to you. And uh, uh, Evan is uh, speaking to us from the uh, borough of Brooklyn, is it, Evan? I've lost track where you, you are these days. Um, it is indeed Brooklyn, just around the corner from the Barclay Center. Ah, so, uh, and Dean, uh, just to get us geographically uh, situated, where are you? Uh, not here, I can see that. I am uh, touching base with you, and thanks for uh, having me on from uh, Rye, New York today. Ah, Rye. All right. So this podcast, ladies and gentlemen, is coming to you from 233 Broadway, which is the world headquarters of Grant's Interest Rate Observer. But uh, uh, we are in the modern way. We are not so 2019 as to insist that we all be in person. We are apart yet together. So, uh, Dean, I, you raise a very interesting point in one of your comments that I just uh, taken a look at, it, which is uh, you quote John Burbank, uh, uh, a guy who is, uh, invests well and also thinks interesting thoughts about investing as he is making money. And uh, John Burbank is wont to say, what if, quote, what if price is a liar? Uh, what does that particular phrase mean to you these days when so many prices seem to be so extreme? I spent my career really studying market prices and uh, certainly believe that there's a lot of information content in asset prices. And especially if your discipline is derivatives, then you get to study all kinds of, of prices uh, across the volatility surface of uh, time and different strike prices and absolute prices and relative prices. So uh, I think there's so much information in market prices. Uh, and yet, as John Burbank said, uh, price is a liar. And, and by that, uh, my take on what he was saying is that let's value market prices and the information content, but not take them too seriously, because at a given point in time, price is simply what satisfies uh, the supply-demand equation. It, it, it's the price at which folks are able to transact. And because our markets are imperfect and they go through spasms uh, of both almost impossibly high volatility and sometimes impossibly low volatility, price is simply the metric that uh, brought people to the table. And um, at different points in time, you can see dislocations in markets that lead to prices that you just have to scratch your head on. Yeah. And Which say, prices Boy. in particular um, have you scratching? Well, I go back and, and you know, can cite a number of them. Um, so, for example, um, there was a near famous blow up in the very long dated volatility markets uh, in the S&P 500 in 2010. Middle of 2010, the uh, variant swap market, which really is a synthetic way of trading volatility, it, it simply broke. Um, you know, we, we like to think markets are efficient and that price discovery is continuous, but um, it's just not always the case. And so at the height of this dislocation, when all of the 
counterparties that would typically be chomping at the bit to sell volatility at outrageously high prices, everyone was doing the exact opposite. Uh, there was just a imbalance of supply relative to the demand that overwhelmed it. And again, the only way to create the trade is through price. And so you had trades clearing this variant swap market um, on 10-year maturities at a strike of, of 40. Now, what does that mean? That means that for the seller to lose money uh, over a 10-year period, the S&P was going to have to move 2.5% a day every day for 10 years. And there's just nothing remotely close. Is there is there any price today or any market that comes close to satisfying that evident absurdity? I mean, so many things seem detached from uh, what a, a Martian visiting here from Mars might deem to be uh, normal. I mean, uh, we have... Um, Evan, can you name a few oddities that uh, might satisfy uh, criteria of extreme verging on absurd for Dean's consideration? Sure. Um, <clears throat> Tesla, which has a trillion-dollar market cap, has rallied about 50% over the last month and a half or two months. Um, Crypto.com recently bought um, naming rights for a stadium for $700 million. A group of crypto investors have raised over $40 million to buy one of the 11 surviving copies of the U.S. Constitution. Um, we've had stocks like um, Avis, which rents cars, go up as much as 200% intraday and close up 100% in a single day. Uh, the, the list of like absurdities is, uh, is almost encyclopedic at this point. What yeah, about it, what is, 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 this, is, is this what moment are we living in and what, I don't know, the, the, the example you cited from 2010 was, was, was certainly seems absurd, but it's also very recondite. The things that uh, Evan mentioned are rather more self-explanatory, but uh, what, do they, what do they say about the world we live and invest in? Well, I think they say strongly that uh, there is a fundamental pricing reality that's driving a lot of this, and I think it, uh, it links back to uh, bond yields. It's... Um, been covered at, you know, ad infinitum. It's a daily talking point amongst us all. But if I, Jim, were to stare at the, the screen of prices that I look at and pick one or two that are just uh, out of bounds, uh, one might be that five-year real interest rates, uh, so five-year tips are implying a, a, a yield of almost negative 2%. Um, and, no, let's, uh, that's, let's, let's investigate that again, because that I think a lot of people uh, hear the word tips. Oh, yeah, right. Inflation protected securities. They know that. But if inflation protected means protecting against the depreciation of the currency, how would a minus 2% yield afford the investor protection? Well, it, it still can. It's just that the starting point is pretty unappealing. In other words, so, you, what's, the, what's the market reasoning? Is it reasoning that the inflation compensation will more than uh, make do for the negative coupon or yield or what's i don't know how do, you, how do we think about that you might frame it that way uh it, it is to some degree that um but i think it's it, it's a number of other things as well it, it is a price that reflects again supply demand dynamics that are so governed by central bank activity and intervention the the fed has been uh the largest player in the tips market for years now by it buys more than the net supply. Um, so its hands are all over this price. And so what would you wind up with is you look at, let's say, the nominal yield on the five-year part of the curve, which is up, certainly as the market's starting to reprice 
the speed with which this uh, tightening cycle may occur. Um, but underneath the surface of this, let's call it 1.2% nominal yield, are these strikingly out-of-bounds prices, one of which is this, again, negative 2% real yield. Um, remember, the nominal yield is the sum of the real yield and the break-even inflation rate. Um, so to arrive at this 1.2% nominal yield, you've got your negative 2% uh, real yield and a, call it 3.2% break-even inflation. It's a, it's a striking disconnect between two prices. And it again, beneath the surface of this 1.2% nominal yield, I think are market prices that are screaming that all is not well with respect to uh, the judgments around Fed policy, and that this idea of waiting it out, of, um, of, of the wait-and-see approach to, to determine whether transitory is a thing or not, is uh, people are growing restive, I, I would say. That's what you're seeing <laughs> underneath the, the surface. But does it, does, it, does it not surprise you? I think Evan might uh, have a view on this as well. Does it surprise you that the uh, long bond in the face, long bond meaning the 30-year treasury, in the face of a, uh, of a persistently transitory <laughs> uh, print of the CPI, uh, is still a 2.2%, whatever it is today, 2.2%, 2.1% number, rather than, say, a 3% number or a 4% number? Is, yeah, is, yeah. is a long bond under the thumb of the Fed, or is the bond market in its Impressions, perhaps seeing things that we worry warts would rather not see or can't perceive. I think there's a number of ways to come at this, and certainly um, we're in markets because we we believe in being able to ascribe causality. Uh, markets have to make some economic or financial sense for us to um, to want to participate in them. And, and there are definitely aspects of today's set of prices that uh, strain the imagination, I think. Um, so, so we're forced to come up with uh, why is this different? Why is it that the 10-year yields several hundred basis points below inflation? Um, something's got to be different in order for this price to exist. And so I would say it's a couple of different things. One is certainly the markets are under the thumbs of central banks. Um, central banks have overwhelmed markets for, for a long time now. You know, it's really become a post-financial crisis thing. It got furthered during the Eurozone sovereign crisis, which ultimately was solved by the ECB saying we can overwhelm markets, even though that wasn't the case in 2010 and 11, uh, when um, you know a new philosophy ruled the day that that was the case. So you had you know even as early as several months ago, uh, or as, as recently as several months ago, even Greek government bonds had a negative nominal yield. I think out uh, five years. And then of course the the pandemic is ultimately about the central banks really. Uh, overwhelming market prices, probably because they had to, uh, because we really were in a, a crash, not just of the risk, risky asset complex, but the risk-free asset was crashing as well. And so something um, had to be done. So central banks are a part of it. Another part of it, Jim, I would say is what, what you said, is, is just looking past all this and saying over a long period of time, these growth dynamics are going to wear off uh, the sugar high that's been uh, jolted, uh, you know, this jolted asset prices higher uh, recently. Um, and then the last one I think is is important as well, which is, again, just back to this idea of supply and demand, people are buying, investors are buying um, duration. There, there's a need to own duration uh, for 
non-economic reasons. Uh, there are institutional considerations that leave, for example, asset liability managers just uh, forced to um, try to solve a math problem, which is um, matching duration of assets and liabilities, and that leaves them with demand for fixed income securities at prices that are head-scratching to most of us, but they do fit perfectly fine into their um, their framework of just trying to match assets and, and liabilities. In, in the long preceding bond bear market, 1946 to 81, there was a demand for asset and liability matching as well, but that took place at ever higher yields. And I, I, I'm still perplexed. Hey, these days it can be hard to find and hire the right candidates for your small business. That's why LinkedIn Jobs makes it easier to find the people you want to talk to faster and for free. Create a free job post in minutes on LinkedIn Jobs to reach your network and beyond to the world's largest professional network of over 770 million people. It's why small businesses rate LinkedIn Jobs number one in delivering quality hires versus leading competitors. LinkedIn Jobs helps you find the candidates you want to talk to faster. Did you know every week nearly 40 million job seekers visit LinkedIn? Post your job for free at linkedin.com yield. That's linkedin.com slash yield to post your job for free. In, in, in the long preceding bond bear market, 1946 to 81, there was a demand for asset and liability matching as well, but that took place at ever higher yields. And I, I, I'm still perplexed. I, I am perplexed as well. And um, what I try to do is just try to step back and put it together um, and, and try to find where there might be a tipping point where – the market that I think most people care about um, the most, which is which is equity markets, that's where most of the financial wealth is, um, and specifically the S&P 500, which is this global benchmark. And just ask myself, is there something amiss here? Is the market failing to appreciate the set of risks that we can see? Um, and then what are the set of tipping points. That's a, a lot of what my work is these days. In one of your recent reports, you in fact wrote, markets incorporate information at different speeds. And you wrote, for instance, the S&P 500 reached an all-time high in the third quarter of 2007, while the credit markets were clearly cracking. Well, today we have the S&P 500 at an all-time high. We have uh, concentration within the top names within the S&P 500 near an all-time high. What signals are you seeing in other markets that um, you know investors are digesting that you don't see reflected in the equity market, and what might those problems be? I think you, you first want to look at the at the bond market uh, and the risk-free bond market, and uh, I think there are certain pricing metrics that are uh, kind of screaming. Uh, and again, we walked through this big differential between five-year break-even inflation and, and five-year. Uh, real yields. I think that's telling you something that's not well underneath the surface. And because we focus so much uh, at macro risk advisors on volatility, I would say that uh, the VIX equivalent of the rates market, so you might look at the move index, which looks at uh, implied volatility on various bonds. There's metrics you can look at in the OTC swaption market that will illustrate, um, one, that volatility has expanded quite a bit. It's gone up a lot. Um, and two, that the um, way in which the market prices the potential for a significant rise in rates relative to a significant fall in rates, that's changed a lot too over the last six months or so. Um, and what you've seen is the rising rate risk has increased um, significantly relative to this idea that rates could fall fast. 
And a bunch of this is just the data. Um, you're seeing days on which stock prices and bond prices fall together, and volatility in both markets rises together. And let's just step back for, for a quick second. Think about the 60-40 portfolio, the entire construction of modern-day uh, institutional portfolio management is based on this idea that I can hold some stocks, hold some bonds, and that they sort of mitigate the risks of each other. One goes up, the other goes down. You get a little bit of carry in owning the bonds. And that's certainly been the case over 20-odd years of disinflation. Um, but this year, we've seen too many instances. In fact, November 10th, uh, so just last Wednesday, uh, was was one of these days where uh, I think the TLT fell 1.8%, the S&P fell 80 basis points, the VIX popped 5%, bond implied volatility moved up. This is really the death knell of of the type of portfolio that one might find themselves having, right, which is own some stocks, own bonds as a hedge. My biggest concern, and we've talked about this before, is the changing nature of duration, that it has been a risk mitigator for so long that there is it's very difficult to contemplate or prepare for its changing role, and perhaps that it becomes a risk accelerant, that it's rising bond yields that become the source of the risk off, and that because so much, and Evan, you just talked about all of these crazy outcomes in equity market prices, all this wealth, um, I do think it's linked to low bond yields. It is a there is no alternative type outcome. And so if bond yields rise, and they haven't so far, but if they do, you can see a, a risk off that really is sourced from the risk-free asset itself. The thing that was supposed to be the hedge actually becomes part of the problem. And how might this play out? I mean, I, I know that there are certain strategies that over the last 20 or 30 years have grown up and become larger and leveraged, um, like risk parity, um, that have taken advantage of the fact that um, stocks have been anti-correlated to bonds. If the correlation goes up and the risk-free asset becomes the, the vector of contagion, how, uh, where does this hit kind of the financial system? Where will we see the damage? And where do the problems come from? So I, I think it's worthy to step back and sort of think about the, the sources of equity volatility. Um, and so, so in my rendering of it, you, you can get volatility from one of four sources. Um, the first is just the most obvious one, which is just earnings. Earnings are volatile because the economy uh, goes through both good periods and rough patches. So economic volatility, earnings volatility, that's, of course, going to cause vol in stocks. Uh, the second, you might say, is vol that is linked to being closer to a credit event. Um, so this was really 2008. The leverage in the system and in stocks left them more vulnerable to default. And so in this kind of relationship between credit spreads and, and equity volatility in stock prices, it reached the tipping point. The third, and by the way, I don't see a lot of that right now. You know, balance sheets on the corporate side, um, while there's leverage, they're pretty far away from anything we could consider a default event. Um, the third one we've talked a lot about, which is just the vol of the discount rate, um, interest rates going up or down, and this potential that rising interest rates, especially if, they, if it happens in a hurry, uh, can be disruptive uh, to stocks. And then the last one I just would put in the category of vol of PE ratios, the multiple itself. And this is where I have a real problem with the current market. The, the degree to which there is so much financial wealth and, and equity wealth that's just linked to a multiple. It's, it's certainly not a function of earnings. It's really more about earnings growth, the potential that something could happen. Um, you know, stocks uh, like Avis become options. 
and uh, the market reacts so strongly. And this is, to me, the biggest vulnerability is that you have um, a upcycle in interest rates and inflation that changes the degree to which the Fed can be so accommodative. In fact, the Fed turns much less market-friendly, and that has a significant implication for for valuations. Um, That's how I see this at least potentially playing out, especially, again, if the inflation dynamics are ultimately squared with interest rates, um, that's where I I think the, especially the high flyers, you mentioned concentration in the equity market, it's really become a growth index. It's success very linked to to low rates. So these high multiple stocks are long duration assets and uh, vulnerable to, to high rates. Hey, um, Dean, you have compared the uh, concept of the transitory inflation of 2021 with the now notorious uh, contention that subprime was contained in 2007. Is that uh, a point for musing and thinking about, or is that your conviction that 2021 is going to bring us the inflation that is going to resemble in its significance the subprime problem of 2007. I find it so difficult to predict things, um, but what I'm really hoping to do there is force contemplation and reflection. And um, and you know we we want to learn from past mistakes. And so um, when I look at 2007, and I look at really what was an epic misread of the the situation by the most well-meaning and highly educated policymakers, Paulson, Bernanke, um, policymaking boards like the IMF, really misunderstood the risks in the system. They looked at a low VIX. They looked at CDS spreads in the 20s on U.S. banks, and they thought all was well. This is the market telling you how robust the system was, and it just could not have been more wrong. And um, they tried to jawbone the market and, and said things like subprime is contained and just waited for it. And here we're hearing that inflation is transitory, and let's just wait for it to come back down. The, the similarities um, to me are that um, one market, and it was mortgages back then, and it's treasuries now, are up against some big changes in fundamentals. Um, so what, what was changing fundamentally back then was that subprime defaults were starting to rise quite quickly. What's happening now? Inflation is rising quite quickly, and we could say inflation is a, a closet default or a kind of creeping default on risk-free assets. Um, the important part is that both of those assets uh, and the performance of them have had and have huge implications for other asset classes. Um, and Yes. What what happens if the market starts losing faith in central banks? And the reason I ask is you you brought up kind of the the financial crisis. And I recently reviewed like journalist coverage of that time, and people were fairly critical of the Fed. And in fact, the Fed announced, I believe, they're going to do QE in November of 2008, and the market didn't actually bottom until uh, March of 2009. Um, in the last cycle, the Fed kitchen sinked every single uh, facility it had on March 23rd, which also happened to be the exact day that the stock market bottomed and that bond yields started declining. Um, what happens if people People start questioning whether central banks are infallible and can actually make mistakes, no longer know the future, and no longer control the destiny of markets. I I think that that's, uh, again, in the set of concerns I have, it's the notion that we're really used to the Fed being able to address any risk off. Some are huge and some are important, but maybe they're more VIX of 30 or 40 type events. 
Um, so you can go back to August of 15 with China, early 16, there was a energy price crack and, and uh, some issues in the high yield market. You know, we've certainly seen some risk offs along the way, but during each of those, the Fed was able to say, well, listen, inflation is below target. Uh, we've typically run one and a half percent, trying to get core PCE to 2%, and we've been consistently low. And so the Fed's been able to say, well, now we've got this risk off. The, the, the VIX has risen. Financial conditions have tightened. That's sort of a policy tightening in and of itself. And so we're going to try to talk the market off the ledge. And because we're below target, we can do that. This is different. This is, okay, so now uh, if and when you do get uh, the next risk off, and it's, it's inevitable, it doesn't have to be a financial crisis, but it's just a different set of circumstances when inflation's running so far above target. There's not the same flexibility to, to ease, to try to execute some form of forward guidance, to try to juice things back up. It's a much trickier environment. Um, and so, you know, on the credibility question, I do think that there's a lot of talk these days around that. You see Mohammed el Irian is especially, I would say, professionally critical for him. Um, Larry Summers has been saying, you know, a number of things. Bill Dudley just published a piece. There's a, a lot of very, very thoughtful folks who have seen this before um, questioning whether this is the right uh, track for the Fed uh, to go down. And I think at the heart of it, what I pick up on is the sequencing of, okay, we got to do this first. We have to execute the taper fully. That's going to get us to the middle of next year. And then we'll contemplate rates rising. Boy, that's going to leave a lot of time between now and a 1% funds rate. That's a yeah. long time. What does the, um, uh, the questing concerned professional investor do about all of this? I mean, you're in the business of not only thinking through these matters, but also applying practical hedges against risk. Uh, what is attractive to you in the way of a practical portfolio solution? Well, it's not obvious. And that's, I think, part of the challenge. When, when you step back and you look at, again, look at all these prices um, and you think, okay, what would you like to be able to do? Well, they say, well, just de-risk your portfolio. Just don't own so much equities. And that is easier said than done for a lot of folks. <laughs> Being out of the market market is itself risky, uh, especially for the institutional money manager. Uh, that that risk of missing out is real. It's it just uh, uh, it, it's a very challenging thing to not participate. Uh, the last three years in the S&P, I think we've compounded 25% annually. That's just a tremendous benchmark to be up against. Boy, to be underinvested in that period, uh, unless your investors are really long-term, is, is just difficult. Uh, so being out is challenging. Well, what's next? Uh, okay, let's look at some equity hedges. That's really tricky. Um, the One of the features of the market post-pandemic has been a persistent expensiveness of equity insurance. Uh, you can look at things like the spread between the VIX and the actual realized volatility of the S&P. You're in the 95th percentile uh, on some of these metrics. So you're always paying an insurance premium. It's been especially high. And there's a, a number of reasons for that, but it's a fact. It makes challenge, uh, hedges very challenging. And then, of course, um, fixed income. Using fixed income as a hedge, well, this is what we were saying before, both its correlation dynamics relative to risk assets might be in flux. It's not as reliable. And then, of course, the yields are so low. Uh, so to be 
out of equities and into bonds, you used to be able to at least pick up some real return. Well, now you're starting at a significant deficit. So where does that leave me? Um, uh, just if I were to try to think through the the hedges that you might contemplate for next year, um, I think you really have to look at indices like the triple Q. Um, that's just where all the action is. The S&P is a version of the Qs because the same stocks sit atop both indices, but the Qs has got more of it. And to me, it is stocks that are vulnerable to a rise in bond yields. Um, those tend to be tech stocks. They're high multiple stocks. And that's where, again, a lot of the market cap is. Um, you have the same conundrum in terms of volatility. It's expensive stuff. Um, so I do think that there are hedging strategies you can do that um, satisfy, one, your uh, risk of being wrong, right? That's kind of what a hedge is supposed to do is if you're wrong on the trade, uh, you, you know what you lose. Um, and then number two, try not to break the bank uh, based on the high levels of implied volatility. So I think that there are certain constructs in equity derivatives that you can use to get yourself conditionally short or some conditional downside exposure uh, to the market that are neutralizing the cost of the hedges. Dean, um, looking, looking yeah. back uh, at, at prior uh, market tops, um, has it ever been the case that equity hedges have been this expensive? Or could one make the case that um, uh, the market will not peak until the bears have given up, feel no need to hedge, and these options become cheap? That's a really good question. The, so my first answer is no. Um, when you get to other market uh, previous market peaks, the um, the volatility tends to be much less expensive. You know, that could be 2007. It could be just before the pandemic, you know, similar sort of market peaks. Um, today's period bears most similarity to the tech bubble itself. Um, the types of stocks that are doing well are the same. The um, nature of volatility is the same. And so this is sort of when I come back to my, my four sources of equity volatility, it is just vol of the multiple. It's just speculation that's creating a lot of volatility in stocks. When, when I look at um, the stocks that have a market cap north of $100 billion in the S&P, of which there's, I think, almost 100 of them now, um, the vol profile of these stocks is much different than, let's say, five years ago, where the volatility of, these, of those same mega cap stocks was just much uh, lower. Um, so you have stocks like Google and Tesla and NVIDIA and Facebook. Um, you know, none of these stocks are going to go bankrupt. There's no credit event coming, but they're very volatile. And it just, to me, speaks to the degree of speculation that's just become rampant in, in stocks, probably punctuated most by things like meme stock. Um, Evan and I were talking about just the degree to which these stocks can go up to 300% um, so quickly. It's just uh, a rampant speculation in markets. And that, to me, is a sign. <laughs> um, when, when the stock price and its volatility travel together higher, it's an excellent sign of speculative excess. And I'm seeing that in many stocks these days. Yeah. Well, Dean Kernut, you have been most generous with your time. And uh why don't we get together again after there's some great big bang and we can talk about picking up some pieces. But in the meantime, um, Evan and I wish you a happy day. Happy, uh, we're, it's uh, springtime here in New York City. It, uh, it won't last. We have both agreed about that. And uh, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening to Current Yield and we will talk again soon. 